0: Dusty, have you ever gone on a hunting trip? Well, yeah. You pack all your stuff. Let's say you're driving to New Hampshire. Let's say I'm driving to Ohio, and you're hunting for four, five, six days. What's the biggest challenge you usually have? You're going to stop multiple times and get gas, and I worry about odor the whole way. It's always in the back of your head. After talking to our friend Tim Gothier, we realized that there's a better solution that is portable. And that solution is called the scent lock enforcer. This nifty little device about the size of an iPhone. It produces ozone. Ozone is this naturally occurring O3 molecule that actually naturally removes odors, kills bacteria, binds to all kinds of odor particles in the air and basically makes you scent free instead of like a scent cover up. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. You can put this in your toe. It operates off of a USB and has an eight hour battery life. It's the personal ozone generator. It is the personal ozone generator. If you want to check it out, go to scentlockenforcer.com. That's S C E N T L O K, enforcer.com. Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast, episode number 170 Dave Pribby and Deer Hunting Basics. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Today's show is sponsored by the Scentlock Enforcer, Morse's Sporting Goods, and the Eurohanger. <laughs> Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level.
1: Hey, this is Bob Dumong from the Buckhorn Boat Dog, listening to the Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast. This is Neil Pendleton of Southern New Hampshire, and I killed the 1490 buck. That's 1,490 days of hunting a 192-inch, 22-point, 10-and-a-half-year-old buck. You can, too, if you listen to the Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast. This is Sam Ubel from Whitetail Adrenaline, and I'm pressing play on one of my favorite podcasts big
2: buck registry deer hunting podcast
0: hey welcome to another episode of the big buck registries deer hunting podcast my name is Jay and I am psyched that you're joining us once again to talk deer hunting for the next hour It's nothing that really gives me as much pleasure as that man you know we we made this show just to talk about deer hunting and gosh darn it you know it's working out pretty good I'm joined by my good friend and co-host from Ohio, Dusty Phillips. What's going on, Dusty? It's a great
1: day to be alive, Jay. What is that? Yeah, I just got home from New Hampshire. When's the show going to air? Uh, Saturday? Saturday, yeah. I'll give you some more to edit here. Yep, thanks, bud. Nah, man, this week returning back from New Hampshire and uh, real fortunate to kill a fall long beard there and never did get on a bear, but that's hunting, you know. We tried really hard. We We hunted every day, daylight to dark and no, we never dig it on a bear, but that's okay. I'll be back. Well, that bear knew you were in town because he kept showing up in my backyard. Is <laughs> something? It is. It is. It's like they knew you were here. Did you ever get your luggage? Yes, I did get my luggage, and everything that I sent home was still there, so I'm thrilled with that.
0: Excellent. All right. I know you, you tested out a little of the sample of the West Hopkinton honey, and uh, actually, at least I think that's what you brought home. I'm not quite sure. Maybe you got the... Tupela we uh, no, tested? I got West
1: Hoppington. West Hoppington. All right, very nice. I'm going to give a shout-out to the West Hoppington bee herd. My gosh, it's so good. Yeah, it's pretty yummy. You know, they they always say that if you consume
0: honey that's local to your area, that your allergies will be less because you're taking in all the allergens from around your area. And it's it's pretty sweet and yummy, too, so it's it's all good. So, see, one of the things that we have been requested to do on this show, more or not more, but is to have some kind of a deer hunting basic show. The people that have requested this said that, you know, you guys go pretty deep on a lot of subjects, and you get some really talented deer hunters on your show, but it's a little advanced for the beginner. And I have to agree with them. And we go deep and really touch on some really, really hardcore subjects when it comes to deer hunting and some very specific advanced type course material, I would say, to help out some of the people that have just gotten started deer hunting. We thought we'd break it down and have a guest come on. Actually, in this case, I went to record this guest who was giving a seminar locally at the New Hampshire Fish and Game headquarters, a guy by the name of Dave Priby. We recorded Dave last year when he did his advanced course called Hunting Dominant Bucks. But they, the New Hampshire Fish and Game and Dave got together, and they made this course, a beginner's course, for those that are just starting out. And I don't know if you—it was aired live on Facebook, and I have edited down the audio that I recorded that night so that we could bring it to you if you are just getting started. If you're a newbie hunter, Dave covers some of the most basic deer hunting items that you're going to want to know. It's advanced from when you took your hunter's safety— Dave does reference some of that stuff that, that goes to hunter safety, but this would be like the next step if you're graduating to from hunter safety to the next course and you wanted to get a little more specific, and this one's all about deer hunting. So deer hunting basics with Dave Pribbe. Dave is a native of Raymond, New Hampshire. He's a software engineer for, for a telemarketing company. He's an accomplished carpenter. He's an avid fly fisherman and fly tire. He does some radio, which is kind of cool. And he's a radio producer and host of the New Hampshire Gospel Radio. He is the bass singer for a group called The Bass Notes. He's a certified beekeeper, speaking of hunting. He is a hunter, and he's been hunting deer for a long time. He's also a pro staffer for Quaker Boy Game Calls. But Dave likes to give back to the community, give back to hunters, and share what he has learned over the years. If you wanted to listen to last year's show called Hunting Dominant Bucks, just go into iTunes or any of the podcast directories and type in Hunting Dominant Bucks Big Buck Registry, and you'll find it, and you'll hear the advanced course that Dave gives. Before we get to Dave, uh, I'd like to invite you to check out our survey we're doing, trying to learn a little bit more about you, who you are. It's a five-question survey. Dusty, you took it. I took it. Dave, Absolutely. Pretty simple stuff. And- We're just trying to get an idea who listened to the show. So if you could go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash survey. And somebody reminded me the other day that we didn't have it on our website. So I'll be putting it up on our website as well. So you'll see the link. It'll just say survey. I also want to say thank you to our most recent pledge and patron. and That's Doug Priest. He pledged $10 per month. Thank you so much, Doug. Yeah, I, I, know you're, I know you're listening right now, and I know Doug personally. He was my apprentice last year under the Fish and Game program, and now he's got some tree stands set up, got some cameras out. He's ready to rock and roll. I guarantee he's going to shoot his first deer this year, and I was psyched when he asked me to do it. And now Doug has turned around and pledged to the show because he finds value in it. So hopefully you find value in it too, and if you would like to join the pledge campaign, all you have to do is go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash donate so let's let's get on with the show and start listening to dave priby talk about the basics of deer hunting but
1: before we do let's turn to jim keller with the deer news the deer news this week is sponsored by the Eurohanger. you don't have to spend big bucks to hang your big buck get yourself a euro hanger facebook.com forward slash Eurohanger. e-u-r-o-h-a-n-g-e-r
3: for the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. In our first story, North Carolina researchers ask for help in camera trap survey. This article is featured on the BlueRidgeNews.com website. A new research project of the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, and North Carolina State University aims to answer a big question What animals are found in the wildest parts of the state, in backyards and in suburbs? Scientists are recruiting schools and residents to participate in the North Carolina's candid Critters, the largest camera trap survey ever with a goal of 20,000 to 30,000 active sites across the state over the next three years. From backyards to North Carolina's wildest places, the images collected by school children and adult volunteers will increase everyone's understanding and enjoyment of the natural world, while at the same time informing future wildlife management decisions. Participants may borrow a camera trap, also known as a trail camera from a public library to use on approved public lands. Participants who own or purchase a camera trap can add images from their own property to the study. These images will help scientists learn more about deer reproduction and the distribution of all mammal species across the state. One of the main scientific advantages of pictures from camera traps is that they are verifiable, which means that they are evidence that an animal was located in a specific time and place. The photos will allow scientists to map where animals live and when and where they are most active across the state. They can use the data to study how wildlife interacts with the environment, with humans, and with other species. To sign up or learn more information on the project, visit www.nccandidcritters.org. DNA testing conducted on cougars killed in the Upper Peninsula. This article was featured on the Michigan DNR's website. Genetic testing on tissue samples from two cougars poached in the Upper Peninsula shows the two animals likely came from a population found generally in South Dakota, Wyoming, and northwest Nebraska. According to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, cougars are once the most widely distributed land animal in the Western Hemisphere, but have been eliminated from about two-thirds of their historic range. At one time, cougars lived in every eastern state in a variety of habitats, including coastal marshes, mountains, and forests. They were native to Michigan, but were trapped and hunted from the state around the turn of the 20th century. Since 2008, the DNR has confirmed 35 cougar reports in the Upper Peninsula, but so far there remains no conclusive evidence of a breeding population. No reports have been confirmed from Lower Michigan. Cougars are on the endangered species in Michigan and are protected by law. Four steps to a perfect hunting social media post. This story was originally featured on the NDA.com website for the National Deer Alliance. 20 years ago, when you took a picture of the deer you killed, recorded your hunt on a VHS tape, or ranted about a hunting issue that bothered you, the only people who ever saw or heard about it were your close friends and family. But thanks to social media, those deer hunting photos, videos, and rants today have the potential to end up in front of millions of strange eyes across the world. Many times those strangers seeing a photo of a dead deer or a video of a hunt are seeing these things from a very different perspective than you or I. And whether we like to think about it or not, this fact of the social media age could have a significant impact on the future of hunting. With this being the case, the responsibility is increasingly being placed on us as individual hunters to be careful about what we're sharing on social media. Here are some things to think about when posting to social media. Number one, choose a respectful image. Most hunters talk about the respect and admiration they have for the animals they hunt. Choose a picture that tells that story. Number two, provide context. Maybe share a bit of the story of this hunt and why it was so special to you. Number three, take an extra second. Before posting on social media, especially related to hunting, it's always good to take one extra second to think before hitting publish. And have fun. If it makes you happy and it's legal, ethical, and respectful, go for it and share your joy with the world. Mark Zuckerberg says animals taste better when you've hunted them yourself. This story was originally featured on the Washington Examiner website and was written by Paul Bedard. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg wants people who eat meat to hunt for their own food or at least get familiar with where their dinner lives. The billionaire said that he began hunting four or five years ago and he prefers to eat when he kills. Half of the joy is things taste better when you make them yourself and they taste doubly better when you've hunted the animal yourself whether you're fishing for salmon or going hunting for a boar that's a big part of it you feel more connected to what you're doing to what you're eating and you cook it yourself and it's the whole experience he said in a 30 minute video interchange with fans it's a good way to feel connected to nature he said adding i feel like if you're going to eat meat then you should be a part of getting it you should get to know where it comes from. On his big green egg were two racks of ribs he flavored with sweet baby ray sauce and brisket was on smoker. I'm the meat chef, he said. His hometown of Palo Alto bans wood-burning fireplaces and wood fires and park grills, but not home grills. One viewer apparently thought the grills were on fire, to which Zuckerberg said, It's not a fire, it's smoke. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. If you have any ideas on future topics or have questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News.
1: Thanks to Jim Keller for the Deer News. Without further ado, here's Dave Purby. Imagine you take all of the
2: safe, ethical hunters, okay, and you put them on the spectrum way over here on this end of the continuum you have the same individual who has hunted every season goes to the same place every year sits under the same tree every year never fired around loves it he loves it great that's his hunting experience he's going to continue to do it way over on this end of the continuum is the individual who every single day lives breathes eats sleeps drinks hunting well that's for tonight let's say white tail deer hunting okay so it's a big broad spectrum of individuals right well most of us fall somewhere in between and those of us who knew uh, are going to find their place on that continuum including myself we're not all the way to the extreme and on either end we're somewhere in the middle and so you will find yourself somewhere on that continuum as you begin your experience hunting and get more seasons under your belt and more experience something else that's also worth pointing out is that uh Each of us present a profile when we pursue game in the woods, when we hunt, and it's very important that we influence the non-hunting public in the proper way. If you look at the statistics, um, 80% of the population um, does not hunt. 10% does hunt, approximately, and 10% are anti-hunter. So, as those of us who are in the hunting community, it's very important that our conduct and our behavior influences the eighty percent who are kind of indifferent to hunting. We want them to fall out on our side. And so your profile and how how the non hunting public sees you and how they interact with you and how they perceive you is very, very important. <coughs> as there's a there's a media based perception which is unfounded. And so everything we can do for those of us who actually <laughs> are in the field hunting and fishing as we Conduct ourselves; the more we can present ourselves in a good way to the non hunting public, the more we're going to influence that 80. percent So when votes come up, political decisions are made; the, the, those voters will fall out on, on our behalf. So think about you know things that you see that might influence the public in a negative way. You know, there's there's many examples. You know, and I see them almost daily uh, on automobiles and such. So that, that's about all I'll really say about that. But I think you get what I'm talking about there. So this is an introductory talk. And these talks came about um, through, uh, through some conversations that I had with Mark Beauchene about having some outreach to the public and having some way to give back to the public here, here at, at, at headquarters. And uh, so, through a few inspirations and such, and some conversations, we, uh, five years ago or so, we put together the first talk called Hunting Dominant Bucks. And I, I gave that talk for three years, and Mark said, Dave, we need an intro talk. And so, that's how this talk um, came about. Here's our overview. Here's the things we're going to cover. What is white-tailed deer hunting? And we're going to take a real interesting look at that, I think. Um, How do I learn to hunt deer? Where can I hunt? Tools do I need? What success? We'll look at a little summary, and then, uh, time permitting, we'll take some time. I'll talk about field dressing, which is something that's very important and important. you know, I've spent time at the registration station and I see a lot of white deer coming in and boy, there's, there's a big, big deviation on how white-tailed deer are field dressed. And, you know, there's really a simple, uh, straightforward way to, to process your deer in the field to get it in that, that I'll explain. So that's our overview. There's, uh, A famous German entomologist, his name is Dr. Jürgen Tautz, and uh, Dr. Tautz is also an expert on honeybees. And in Dr. Tautz's text on the biology of a superorganism, he talks about how life forms acquire knowledge. And Dr. Tautz says there's primarily three ways he's approaching it from an evolutionary point of view. I believe there's at least four ways that organisms acquire knowledge. It's in your DNA. You got it from mom and dad. They passed it down to you. Now think about that. Think about the natural musician, the natural athlete. Yeah, they they had instruction, right? They had experience, but... They had it in their DNA. Some people are just natural predators. Communication with others of the same species, that's another way that organisms acquire knowledge, right? And that's what we're doing tonight. We're doing something distinctly human tonight at the level that we can communicate. And then there's experience, which is trial and error. And so really, for the humans, experience and communication, communication, essentially, are the primary ways that we're acquiring knowledge. But all life forms acquire knowledge in those ways. I also believe there's divine impartation of knowledge. We'll save that for another day. So when you think about what the hunt is, what is it? What really is a hunt? Well, there's a very elementary answer to that too, right? If I asked someone who was in grade school, what's a deer hunt? He would say, well, Dave, you take a gun, you go in the woods and you shoot a deer. And he'd be right, wouldn't he? But it's not quite that simple right? That's a correct answer, but there's more to it. The hunt is defined, as I define it, is the predator-prey relationship. Do you really think of yourself as a as a predator? And in the context of the talk tonight, the prey animal would be the white-tailed deer. So when you think about the predator-prey relationship, you think about what the predator brings to the game, if you will, to the match, and what the prey brings to the match. What's the challenge here? Now, humans have superior intellect. We could kill them all. We could kill all of them. We have the technology. And in fact, even before we had all the technology, back at the turn of the century, where there was commercial hunting, the white-tailed deer population in North America was down around 100,000. Now it's in the tens of millions. So we had really, really killed them way, way back. So we have the ability to do that because of our superior intellect. We can study prey animals biology, We can learn a lot. We can go out and experience them in the field. We can observe them and what they do. And we can make a plan. And we can communicate that plan. The prey species in in this for for white-tailed deer, what do they bring? What do they bring to it? You know, what makes it a match? Well... They have superior human avoidance behavior. They've been a prey species for a long, long time. And they've learned, if you will, and you wonder how they learn it. We just talked about how organisms acquire information. Uh, it's in their DNA. But do you think that they don't communicate? Well, of course they do. We don't understand white-tailed deer communication, but certainly they are experiencing. And there's some level of communication, but it's innate. They have these innate behavioral responses for avoiding predators. And humans, of course, are a prime predator. but there's other predators that they encounter. So. Behaviors are such. So that's really the matchup when you think about it. It's our intellect against their behavior. Now, what makes it fair? What makes it fair? Well, our organizations like Fish and Game and our legislation, they make rules that establish fair chase. They make the laws that govern how we pursue them. And that balances it quite a bit. They set the seasons. They describe the methods. That balances it quite a bit. We could still be unethical, but I would encourage you all to you know, the real satisfaction isn't just harvesting an animal. It's really studying them and really knowing about them. The The more you use your intellect to study any creature, the more that you will respect them And and through that respect, the better you will manage them. So that's the matchup. It's our intellect against their behavior. Does that make sense? So what do we do as humans? Well, we're doing the uniquely human thing here tonight, right? We're having group communication. We're sharing, sharing. And the whole idea behind this in our pursuit of these animals is to develop our white-tailed deer hunting intellect so that we can make a successful hunt plan. Well, how do we do that? Well, we look at their life cycle. We look at their behavioral cycles. We look at their feeding pattern behaviors. We study their biology, study their both their uh, anatomical biology and their behavioral biologies, and we learn all we can about them. And also, not only do we study them and share, but we also experience scout. Scout. And that's one of the key ways, that's one of the primary ways to increase the number of encounters that you will have with white-tailed deer. And the more encounters that you have, the more opportunities you're going to have to harvest one. It's all about encounters. Some days you'll have encounters and you won't have any opportunity to, to take to take those that animal. But you learn every time you have an encounter every time you get to observe them firsthand so you can see on this slide we, we talk about some of the you know the behavior patterns the feeding the resting the watering the breeding and then we also talk on the on this slide a little bit about uh, some of the main aspects of what we look for when we scout what is the deer sign beds droppings rubs, scrapes, tracks, trails and those terms, I know they may be new to some, but we'll describe those in great detail next Wednesday. Things, uh, Behavior that male white-tailed deer have when establishing their breeding domain, getting ready to breed. So, how do you learn? How do you learn to deer hunt? Well, it's really, really good if you have someone who's had a lot of experience that can take you, because experience of others can be communicated and then you can learn. You can experience for yourself, but you probably won't live long enough to get all of the experiences to really build up a a good level of expertise. So reading, studying, communicating, and getting your first-hand experiences is how you develop your hunting skill. It's how you learn how to do it. Really being in the field, being in the field is really key. Those personal experiences you have really teach you a lot. But you have to know enough about the prey species. You have to know about enough about the wait till deer so that when you observe things in the field and you see certain behaviors, you'll know what it means. It'll, you need a big picture so you can put it all together and in my own in my own uh, growth if you will as a as a white deer hunter, when I first started out, I didn't know anything. I was just way over here, just going in the woods, sitting down. I didn't know how to read the sign. I mean, I knew what a track was. I knew what a dropping was. I knew what a rub and a scrape was. I didn't know what it meant, and now I do. There's another aspect here to learning, you know, and this one's really personal, but you do draw on your innate ability. Some people are just natural deer hunters. I have a good friend that I was just talking about a little bit earlier, Dr. Ramos Kenner. He has so many encounters. I, I, I don't know how he does it. He just... He's learned to know where to set up to encounter deer. But sometimes, you know, even if we hunt a brand new piece of ground that we haven't hunted before, he'll have an encounter and I won't. So why is that? Maybe he smells good or something. You know, when we when we talk about uh, the whitetail deer's uh, superb human avoidance behavior, their primary defense is their nose. That's their primary defense. They can see, they can hear, but their nose is, is their primary defense mechanism. So whitetail deer hunting is a smell game and therefore it's a wind game. To learn to hunt... You really have to practice with your firearm or your bow or whatever your, your method is that you've, you've chosen. You really have to practice it. So I, I use a term here, and whenever you take on any new endeavor, it's like there's always a new language you got to learn, right? There's always you know this this vernacular that's used amongst the population. So if I use a term that isn't quite clear, please please uh, ask. This term here when I talk about sight picture, and I use that term in other aspects of my life that I developed in my hunting, what's a sight picture? Well, in terms of using a bow, a firearm, that is, you're in position, to launch or shoot and you know because you've practiced it so many times that picture you know you're going to hit what you're aiming at it's just it's just a given and so that's what I mean by developing your sight picture when you are practicing launch and arrows you just get so automatic with it you don't even have to think about it it becomes just a completely comfortable thing when you're full draw ready to launch target in, target lined up and you know that sight picture's right on but it's the same thing with your firearm but you really have to practice that. Have a high level of confidence in that. Because when, when the moment of truth comes around and you have an encounter and you decide you're going to harvest that animal, you want those aspects of it to be well-practiced and automatic. Question. Okay. So let's talk about methods. Now, there's a lot of deviations to these very uh, basic methods. What we're going to talk about... Hunting from a stand, still hunting, and we're gonna talk about driving deer. Those those are the primary methods, but there's derivatives of those methods, and we we won't branch off on those tonight. We'll just stick to the primary methods. And I don't know where these terms came from. Why is it that you describe stand hunting as taking a seat and not moving, but still hunting, you're moving. You know. I I don't know the origin of those terms, but when you're hunting from a stand, you're not moving. In fact, you're motionless most. And the idea is you're set up to ambush. You've done all your homework. You've picked out your spots, you got your portable stump, and you're sitting on it, nice and comfortable, and you're waiting for an encounter, waiting for white-tailed deer to come into view. That, in essence, is stand hunting. Now, you could be in a tree stand, or you could be on a ground stand. Either way, you're still stand hunting. That is my preferred method, and that is the most productive It's very, very hard uh, to have encounters with white-tailed deer when you're moving because of their superb predator avoidance behavior. Not not impossible, but it takes a great deal of experience and skill to still hunt white-tailed deer, to walk around with your gun and, and get into a position where you can actually harvest one. It happens, but I, I call those hunting accidents. You had an accidental encounter and you, you took the tear And uh, drives. Drives are a team-driven hunt. So what do we put on this slide for Stan? hunt? Okay. How do you productively hunt? From a stand there's a lot of different scouting you can do and there's a lot of different sign you can gather in the field that will indicate to you what white-tailed deer are doing but if you're really time limited if you find fresh droppings, the deer are very close fresh droppings typically haven't turned real black they might have a little more green color to them not not necessarily but they, they haven't dried out much at all and if once you've seen a lot of droppings you'll be able to distinguish fresh from from stale if you find fresh droppings there's deer close by and you can pick out a spot to take your stand that would be called a setup you can get your setup laid out where you're going to sit climb and watch when you choose your setup the place you're going to sit, you got to be mindful of the wind. Because remember, we said their primary defense is their nose. So, prevailing wind and cover. And of course, you want to you want to be careful. You want to be as silent as you can going in and coming out. You want to try not to spook them. And you have to have a great deal of patience. You have to have a great deal of patience. I've sat on the tree stand, or on the ground stand, or in the tree. And I've seen the sun hit the very top of the trees. And I've watched it come all the way down the tree. Light up the forest floor for the whole day. And then will watch it go just the other direction from the same spot all day. It takes a lot of patience to stand hunt. And you have to get your mind to a place where you're completely relaxed and you're completely focused with your senses. You just shut everything else out and you get your ears on full and you get your eyes on full and you're complete alert, but you're really at rest and you're not reacting quickly to things that happen around you. Noises. You hear something, you always follow up on every noise, even the slightest noise. But you start with your eyes and you move very slowly. Never assume that what you heard was, oh, it's just a squirrel or it's just some birds. or. And I'm sure in your experience, when you, when you have more seasons hunting, you You'll make that mistake we all have said to ourselves. Oh, that was that squirrel I saw a little, you know, an hour ago, and it's coming back, and you turn and look, and there's a deer standing there looking at it. And now you're busted. He saw you before you saw him. That's the objective in the still hunting, to see them before they see you. And when they come into view, you know, you think about it. You have a deer come into view, okay. Is there one? Is there more? How many eyes are going to be on me? Can I see their eyes? Because if you can see their eyes, you don't want to move. And the more eyes there are the more chances you are of being detected. So if you have time and you can wait, you wait till you can't see their eyes. And then you move, you shoulder your gun, you set up. When you're in your stand, and this is this is a lesson Dave's learned the hard way, when I'm on the ground, I'll be on my portable stump right there. And I'll be sitting on that boat cushion right there. I'll be able to turn in every direction, but I'll also have places to rest my gun. So I'll have a good solid gun rest. Whenever you can get that advantage, it's a tremendous advantage to have a solid gun rest. You, you will not miss if you've Get a good sight picture, and you're resting your gun. You're going to hit him with that first round, and you're going to hit him solid. I'm sure most of you learned in, in in hunter education what the vitals are in a white tailed deer, right? Heart, lungs, liver, and you know that that area of, of the animal where you where you want to be aimed. So I will I will always set up where I have uh, a good field of view. I'm screened by some shadow if I'm on the ground by some some shaded cover, and I'll have an opportunity to rest my. Why do I do that? Because I've missed. Because <laughs> I've missed. I don't practice shooting freehand. When I go to the when I go to the range and practice, I'm on I'm on a rest because normally I'm just checking my sight picture and I'm checking my sights and I, I really don't have time to do much more shooting than that so so well, what do i do in the field i try to replicate that as much as i can make sure i have good solid gun run. i love to sit in blowdowns you know especially multi-tree blowdowns sit right in the middle of them and then i've got all that screening cover and i've got all those rests all around me that's really what i look for i've got a few spots that i visit regularly that, that blow down i have a couple other things on this slide you know one of the things dr nordberg says in, in one of his texts is uh one of his tips. <laughs> Good view, no deer. When you're when you're taking your stands, you know typically you want to near be near good screening cover. Whitetail deer they love thick, heavy cover. So you'll have more encounters if you're near heavier cover, brushier, denser cover. And your 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 stand hunting is great when it's cold, crisp, and still. Still hunting. This is really. It's really hard. I've tried it. I've, I've tried it a number of times. I was fortunate to to have uh, a group of does that were right across the street from my house, and they were year there year after year. And I knew after the first couple of days of firearms that, you know, they, they got spooked up into this little area of woods. And I tried so many times to sneak up on those deer, and I just could not do it. And and for me, the issue I had was I couldn't see them when they weren't moving. I'd, I'd be looking right through the cover, you know, making my way, going just little tiny increments, you know, three or four feet, stop. And when when I'm stopped, have it such that I can rest the gun either against a tree or on a branch or this. Look and go a little further, stop, look. And I know the deer are in there. And what happens? There they go. Dave can't see them when they're just standing still and not moving. I just can't pick them out. Some people can, but that's something you could learn. It's something you train yourself to do, to see an eye, to see an ear, to see an antler. I just have real trouble doing that, so. And I've practiced it and, and tried it, so I kind of said to myself, well, stick to stand hunting. If you find that you can't sit, you know, and, and sitting becomes an issue for you. Uh, Those are some of the skills you're going to have to develop, is how to use terrain to screen you, how to use the wind, and how to use your eyes to see them before they see you. And a lot of that really uh, works best when when the weather's bad. Rainy, windy, cold days where the deer are just bedded down and not moving, still hunting. Some people are very, very good at it, and it's something that requires a lot of practice, a lot of experience. In New Hampshire, uh, we can drive deer, and you can have up to six, I believe, in a hunting party. And so we talk about stand hunting hunting from a stand that's real low prof- profile hunting right You've parked somewhere discreetly. You've snuck into the woods. You're sitting down, real low profile. And even still hunting can be very, very low profile. Deer drives—that's high profile hunting. And you get a team of hunters and all the trucks and all the orange on, and you're stomping through. We call—we'd call it sweeping pieces of woods. I've swept up there in East Concord many, many times with the guys that I have hunted with in the past. And uh, so typically, how you, how you do it is you you put a couple guns. At one end of a piece of woods, and you'd send four in on the other, and would just start to move through the cover and The idea was to spook deer your way, right and the rule would be. If you spook one, go after it as fast as you can, because because they'll just the whitetailed deer. When you spook them, they they normally don't go that far. They they're conserving their energy. You know they'll go out of sight and stop and turn and look and see what's the threat. You know is it really a threat? And so the idea in the drive hunt is to really spook them. And when they think they're being followed, they'll keep moving. I've been on deer drives where the deer just absolutely faked us out. It's amazing how elusive they can be and uh, go by you. And did you see them? No. What happened they can be very very elusive even when they're on the move you know if you're gonna hunt if you're gonna drive deer and you're gonna hunt deer drives you want to know the guys that you're hunting with really, really well because statistically, if you get shot, it's going to be someone in your team. It's going to be an accidental discharge or something. It's some, someone you know is the higher probability. So don't hunt with folks that you don't think have real strong, safe uh, gun handling practice. So what's the best? Well, I think stand hunting is by far the best, especially when you've done your homework uh, in terms of scouting and uh, you've seen fresh sign, you know the deer in the area, you have some idea where they're, where they're feeding, where they're bedding. And you're set up somewhere in between them and, uh, you wait them out. You will eventually see them. You will eventually see them. I'll tell you a short story. Um, mid coast Maine where mom and dad lived. Uh, I get to hunt their farm for many, many years. And that's really where I cut my teeth on white tailed deer hunting. And there was so many white tailed deer out there and I'd have so many encounters, but I had no idea what I was doing. All I'd see was a lot of deer <laughs> running, running away with their tails, waving by, you know? And, uh, over the years, uh, through my study and such, I learned how to approach them and, uh, One of the key things that I learned was there was certain pieces of woods I'd never go in when the wind was wrong. I just wouldn't do it because I I know they were going to make me out. they know I was coming before I even got close. They, they could smell me, and so, and I also learned that you didn't have to go deep to be successful. How did I learn these things? Well, I had a map, and I map started doing map-based hunt planning, and I mapped out where all my counters were. I mapped out all the sign, I mapped out where all my counters were, and when I looked at that, it was very clear. You know, it was very clear that if I just stayed up on the edges, my chances are going to be real good. I didn't have to walk in that far. It was easy drag out for me, and I was probably going to have more encounters. Uh, one of the last, uh, the last buck that I shot up there. I had 3 days to hunt. I had no time to scout. So there's lots of places for these white-tailed deer to be in any given part of their cycle. Um, went in on a very familiar overgrown Jeep trail. Um, on the first morning in, the weather was really bad. Was, we were going to have an ice storm, and the ice pellets were coming down and running on the leaves and collecting in the middle like little ball bearings, you know, so it was starting to get a little noisy. And on the trail, the trail, it a deer trail that leads into this green field where I know the deer have been feeding. Fresh piles, all different sizes, all different size piles. Green, fresh. I just stopped, and I left. I left. the day the weather was going to turn bad and i left for the day i said okay they're very close if i set up along that trail that leads to the field Leads between the woods and the field. I'm gonna see him. Next day, I went in. Had a brutal windstorm, brutal cold, hard wind, and I knew that it's gonna be very hard for deer moving. You know, there. You think about how their um, their defense system is compromised in weather, right? Strong, hard wind and rain and noise and trees clacking together, and a lot of times they get freaked out when you see them in those conditions. They'll just be all nervous and jittery. But I hunted hard in a very very hard conditions. So I probably put in, uh, you know, from six six in the morning until two about eight hours in on the stand and then couldn't take it anymore got, got cold and had to leave Perhaps some other hunters would go in and might spook the deer my way. That's really what I was banking on in bad condition. And the, the next day I went in, it was Thanksgiving morning. Perfect. Cold, clear, crisp Thanksgiving morning. Breath going straight up. The waterfowlers opened up down at Seven Tree right at legal shooting time. I hear them pounding, pounding ducks down on the down the river. And then maybe a half hour later, I heard the turkeys all going crazy in this overgrown blueberry barren. Cackling and what What's going on? And then I could hear something coming. Sitting in a blowdown. The gun up resting on a branch. Here comes a buck right down the trail. Now I shot that deer and the deer that I killed was not the deer that was leaving those droppings because there were some massive piles there. So what I figured was that this lesser buck had just got driven off and, and the dominant deer was still up in that field with the does. It's all guesswork but that's what it looked like to me because he was running for his life. So I like stand hunting but it is a personal choice and there is some influence on the weather and I really don't recommend drive hunting. I haven't done deer drives over 15. It just, it's too high a profile and I think it leads to some competitive behaviors too that might not be safe so if you're going to drive hunt really really know your team well and don't don't get yourself in a compromised position the peer pressure thing so where can you hunt Oh, New Hampshire's great. I, I have uh sister-in-law who lives in Ohio. She can't hunt anywhere without permission. Parkland, park you can. Everywhere else, close. There's no open access. New England is unique in our open access. Most of the rest of the country, you want to hunt somebody's land? you got to pay. You, you have to get written permission or you have to pay. You can't just go on it. And so that that's a tremendous privilege that we have in New England. And it's a privilege that our legislature attempts to maintain through you know certain tax laws and such, you know current use and such. So keep that in mind. It's very important to know the, the land that you're on who, who owns it and uh you know, be respectful to the landowner and, you know, develop a relationship with the landowners. It's very, very important to keep keep access open, keep the posters down. And it also influences, uh, you know, your behavior influences my access, right? Bad behavior influences all in the community when land gets closed. And so uh, it's a wonderful thing that we have that in New England. It's strong in New Hampshire. It's still strong in Maine, but there's there's a lot of land that continues to be posted up. And it's usually the result of, you know, some high Profile hunting event. You know, somebody leaves trash. Someone parks somewhere they shouldn't have. You know, this simple thing like not not asking permission when that's all landowner requests. But huh. well, we have a lot of parks. We have a lot of open land. We have a lot of fishing game land. We have the national forests. And uh, most of this information is right on the fishing game website. The fishing game website has a lot of really really useful, valuable, practical information. So spend some time and learn learn it. Got great maps both for hunting and fishing. On the- I was in Patuckaway opening day uh, for waterfowl. That would have been yesterday. Yeah, beautiful in there. beautiful in there. Didn't kill any ducks, but they were they were there. Just didn't have any chance to shoot one. Okay. Now we're gonna talk about tools. I'm gonna talk about what tools you need. So depending on your the method that you're gonna take, depending on how you want to hunt, you're gonna have a shotgun, rifle. You're gonna have a bow. Now there's prescribed methods for legal taking, and you have to use one of the prescribed methods for legal taking. <laughs> you don't don't invent one for yourself. <laughs> so in practice, develop your sight picture. So your firearm, your bow. These these are the fundamental essentials here. Firearm your your knife for field dressing, your appropriate clothing. Now, I'm going to take a little time and and talk about clothing because I've spent my whole life developing my personal layering system. And I'm so familiar with it that I know from just looking at the weather or looking outside of the thermometer, what my start temperatures are going to be, what my end-of-the-day temperature is going to be, how much clothing I'm going to need. And so I know how much to pull on if it's going to be 15 degrees, 30 degrees, 50 degrees. I I know how much to pull on so that... I'm not caring too much, but... I'm going to be comfortable. Because if you're not comfortable, you're not going to stay in the hunt, especially if you're staying in hunt. You're just going to be sitting. So I'll, I'll explain to you just in brief what my layering system is. So I'll have my my skivies on and a t-shirt. And then I'll have uh, technical long underwear. So these are uh, polypropylene. I, I have wool and I have polypropylene. And uh, so I'll have, depending on how cold it's going to be, but I'll usually always have the polypropylene on first because that's going to wick away the moisture. and then if, And then I might put on a wool layer long underwear over that. Then I'll have two different layers, two different types of wool pants. I have really thin merino wool pants or I'll have heavy, heavy wool pants. And then I'll have wool bib overalls which will go on over it all. And then on the top, zip turtleneck so I can vent and I may, you know, I'll have my, 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 my layer and I may have an extra wool layer, but then I'll have a wool shirt jack and then I'll have my hunting parker. Now, all the clothing, what's nice about the Hunting Parker is it's, it's a heavy, it's a liner from a waterfowl jacket, one of those four-in-one systems. It's short, it's really, really warm, and really quiet. It's really quiet. All the clothing is really When you turn it, it's not, you know, everything's quiet. Layering system on my head. I'll have a number of different hats, hats, and I'll have a ball cap. And I actually have those things with me, so I can show you why. If I'm dragging a deer, I'm stripping down to next to nothing, and I still want to have my orange on, but I don't want to sweat to death. And then I'll have a wool watch cap which I'll have the hat on and I'll pull the watch cap on over it so I can layer in different ways and normally when 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 I'm walking in in the morning I won't have my heavy top jacket on I'll strap it to my pack and I'll have all my hats and stuff in there too walking in the dark headlamp on now that's just Dave how Dave does it and you will learn your own layering system the hard way because you you'll learn you'll learn when you get cold and you'll learn when I see some people chucking have done it you know it's like oh man I did not put on enough today or so some people need more some people need less and it's a personal thing but the layers are key the layers are key um, as as the day warms up you can peel down and it cools down you can put back on so when you're, when you're approaching your stand, you know, it's important trying to not to get sweated up. So, you know, whenever you're going in, you know, usually in the morning you're excited, you are cranked up, you want to get in your stand, and there's this pressure to get in there, but just take your time and go in and try not to get all steamed up before you get into your, your stand. Um, and, of course, you know, the stuff you learn, your, your survival gear, your basic survival gear would be your compass and a whistle and some water. And, of course, I, I always have my hunting pack with me, and I'll have some other stuff in there you know my game call maybe an extra piece of orange my mittens I've gone through all different kinds of things to figure out how to keep your hands warm if you're a gun hunter and you want to keep your hands warm mittens sorry mittens nothing keeps your hands warm like mittens. gloves just don't if you're a bull hunter that's a whole different thing you got to kind of have gloves but uh for a gun hunter mittens work great but you'll find stuff that will, will work for your personal choices there. I just want to share to give you some reference, you know, I'm praying. What's my take or what's my position on scent control? You know, and all the products that you can get for washing and, you know, clothing. Washing your clothing, washing your body. Uh, excellent question. It, it is a smell game. And so the hunters that are in the extreme of the continuum, they will do everything they possibly can to control their scent, okay? Now, what would that be? They probably never wash any time of the whole year except with scent odor-killing washes. They have all the odor-killing toothpaste. They kill the odor-killing ju- gum. They use the odor-killing gum. They wash all their clothes in scent-killing, UV-killing wash. And they're constantly combating their own body odor. Their hunting clothes never go inside. Never go inside. If they travel, they're in the back of the pick. They're not even in the cab. The, the guy's in the extreme now. You know, but they're looking for every single advantage they can get. And and typically these individuals are hunting the biggest deer, and so they know that these critters did not get really big by not having superb avoidance behavior. So they won't risk anything, especially if they know that massive deer is in there and they want to try to have an encounter with it. Never mind, kill it. They just like to see it. Of course, they want to take it, so they'll go extreme. Now, where's Dave on the continuum? I'm not that extreme, but I will have good behavior through the hunting season. Now, what does that mean? My clothes are all, my hunting clothes are clean, and they're all bagged. They will stay in a building. I'll have them hanging up in the garage. I won't bring them in the house the whole hunting season. They'll be out there hanging up. Soon, I'll start washing with... no scent soap and by the way some of the hunting soaps are really really nice i mean the hunter's specialty stuff with the aloe man it's complete body wash you feel great you know the guys in the extreme will never go in the field without taking a shower never always take a shower they will always go clean 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 footwear they'll be they'll be fanatical about foot odor only rubber boots never neoprene only only stuff that will never pick up and hold odor stuff that they can absolutely kill all the odor in i'm not i'm not that extreme you know they'll sacrifice comfort for odor control because they do firmly believe it gives you an advantage does it yes how big an advantage? I don't know. You're still going to deal with the wind. And you're still going to deal with the white-tailed deer's nose. You still are out there breathing. You still have some metabolic activity going on. You're going you're gonna to make some gases that are going to be distinctly human. <laughs> and it doesn't take very many of those molecules to, to alert mature, mature deer. So, so my personal take is do everything you can within your own desire to be extreme. You know. So yes, scent control. It's all about sending. So and I think what I'm doing is very, very reasonable middle ground. It's not that hard to have a separate place to keep your clothes. And it's not that hard to, to use your body wash and have that discipline to shower every day. And I'll, I'll have like a pair of sweats on and I'll go out in the garage and I'll have, I'll have my stuff out there. It's a little chilly, but, you know, but I'll pull on all my, all my hunting gear out in the garage. And then I, I won't go in the house. I won't. Now, now I'm hunting. And when I come in... Back in, take it off. Now, and, and some, some guys will also use coveralls. They'll have one system, you know, scent control coverall, and they'll pull it on all. You know, my good friend Dr. Kender keeps all of his hunting gear year-round in the, in his barn. There's no automobiles. Is it going to be the same as being in the household, in the dwelling? Probably not no cooking odors. I said there's a lot, there's lots of different styles of whitetail deer hunting and there's lots of different texts. You can find a lot, you can read lots of good stuff. The Norberg's science, biology-based methodology. Some days you have what I call fickle wind. You know, if you have three days to hunt, you're going to hunt, right? And you can think about your prevailing wind and how it really wants to blow. The chances of deer approaching you from downwind are very slight. So when you pick your setups up, you can, you can choose places to sit where depending on how the wind's blowing, you can, you don't have to move. You you know, especially if the deer could approach you from a number of different ways. So but I, I've been out on days where the wind just can't make its mind up and that's enough to drive drive me crazy. It's blowing in this here, it's blowing in this here, it's on my back of my neck, it's a face, it's oh boy. Make up your mind. You know, but some days that's just what the wind does. What's a success what what is a successful hunt? Well, you know, with all your time in the field, with all your endeavors, it's really about the day, you know, when you're a sportsman. Is it really that important to harvest a deer? Is that really what it's all about? It's really it's really about the day. It's really about the experience of the day. That's something I learned really, really later in life was how do you plan? How do you enjoy the whole day no matter what happens? So really, any day you get in the field, you don't get that many days in the field. Think about it overall so it's really about the day and the day gets real good when you have some encounters when a plan comes together right it is really up to you i prefer the mornings my good friend Almus prefers the evenings he loves the evening hunt i don't want to kill him at last light I just i you know i've helped him in the dark many times <laughs> he'll call me and say dave you need some help you know That's the thing. There's there's two hunts that go on, right? There's your first hunt, and you set up, and you have an encounter, and you pull the trigger. Well, if you didn't make a good launch of your arrow, or you didn't have a good rest, and, you know, didn't have a good clean hit with with your bullet, now the deer runs off. Now you have a second hunt, right? And you want to have short second hunts. You don't want long second hunts. They're just miserable. It's just no fun wounding an animal, and, you know, you really have to learn to pass up shots that aren't good, you know? You have to say to yourself, well, I had an encounter owner and I got I got here I got you. I'm going to let you go today because I just don't have that. I just can't see enough of the vitals or there's too much cover to shoot through. that happens a lot the more encounters that you have. So you have to be willing to just pass. Otherwise, you're just going to have long second hunts and you just it's, just it's just miserable. You feel terrible when you wound them and can't find them. Or you find them too late and the dogs get to them and they're spoiled. I learned to field dress watching videos by Larry Metz. L-E-M products. Remember that? LEM products. Iris is a meat cutter in Ohio, and he made a couple DVDs uh, processing whitetail deer from the field to the table. Outstanding. Outstanding. Wore the, wore the videos out. Just, just wore them out. Um, and I was just shopping for some DVDs because I'm going to be asked what my Christmas list is going to be, and I want to say I hope Santa brings me some DVDs because even though I remember a lot of it, I'm sure there's some little details that I that I, I'm not practicing in the whole processing. Because I process all my own whitetails, and I would encourage you to learn to do it. It's great to cut your own meat and cut it just the way you want it. So satisfying. It's a chore, but it's really really satisfying. So when you have uh, you had an encounter, you were all set up. Your plan came together. You made a quick, clean kill. You launched. You fired. The critter went down. The white-tailed deer is dead. You know when you approach, when you approach an animal that you've stabbed or shot, and you approach it from the hind end, and you looking at the animal's eyes. It's typically, if their eyes are open and it's on its side, it's probably dead. I'm just tap it. But when you do launch or you do shoot, just to, before we get into the details of white-tailed deer hunting, launch. Had a hit. Okay. Pow. Had a hit. Okay. What am I gonna do? the no. Deer ran that way. I have a general idea which where, where it went. I remember from my sight picture, I know where I hit it. I'm very confident I had a good clean hit. What am I going to do? Check my watch. 15 minutes. Now I'm staying right here. You might, you might see more critters. I'll get out my water bottle. I'll get out my coffee. I'll send a few text messages. I'll just wait. If I'm in the tree, I'll climb down and strip off gear to get ready for a second hunt, right? Now I'm not going to be sitting, so I don't want all this heavy gear on that I had on from sitting. That's why having a really good pack where you can strap stuff to is really really important so i can pull off all my heavy strip down to my light tie all my gear to my pack and then go recover my animal so approach your deer it's dead congratulations tag it so Get your tag out. Remember to bring a pen with you. Fill out your tag. What I do is I fold the tag up and I stuff it in the deer's ear and then I take a cable tie and I zip the ear shut. I've never lost a tag tagging them. Tagging them any other way, I've had to go back in the woods a few times to find the tag. So stick it in the ear with a cable tie, zip, and wrap that ear up, fold the ear up and zip that table tie. Tag will be in there, solid. Okay, now we're gonna field dress. Your knife, field dressing, doesn't need to be any longer than that pen right there. That's it. A little folding or hard knife or fixed knife. That's all the knife you really need. And this is how you hold it. You hold it with your finger on the point and the butt of the knife in the palm of your hand. That's how you'll do the majority of your cutting. And if if you've killed a buck, the first thing to do is to grab all of his genitalia and remove it. Cut it off if you've cleaned the dough, that's not necessary. You don't have to worry about the, any of the mammaries, you'll just cut through those. You start at the anus and you take just the point of the knife, just the tip doo, 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 around, and you'll go all the way around. So you'll make an incision through the skin all the way around, and then your fingers in. And, and what's nice is I, I, have, I carry a kill bag with me. You want to see my kill bag? A couple nice things about having the portable stump is you can sit anywhere you want, and you have a bolt cushion so you can kneel on it. So nice my brother gives me the crown royal bags they're not mine that's supposed to be funny this is this is my kill bag what's in it some neoprene gloves or some nitro nitro gloves i think my son used the up oh, look at that blue cable tie 30 gallon garbage bag heart and liver gonna go in that bag extra string and then and then a blood rag gotta have the, gotta have the blood rag you're gonna have to wipe your hands up when you're done so and, and, and at some point you'll wanna just clean your, your your knife up a little bit so those work great the old dish towels so I'll what I'll do is I'll I'll lay out the I'll lay out the blood rag and then whenever I have to set my knife down I'll set it on the rag so I don't lose it in the leaves you know you'll set it on the deer and it falls off so cause you're gonna you're gonna have a little amp you know, you just harvested a deer. You're going to be excited, and, and there's every reason to be excited. Then that's why you hunt. It's, a, it's an exciting moment when you when you harvest one of these magnificent creatures. But we're going to we're going to field dress this properly so that we can preserve all this fine meat that we've just taken. So we're cutting around the anus, and we've gone through the skin layer, and then it's a combination of using your knife and your hands. So then you're going to reach in and you're going to feel the connecting tissues around that tube, and then you're going to go in with a little more blade. A little more point and a little more blade, holding it the same way, moving your, finger, your index finger down the blade of the knife, an inch or so. And you're going to cut in a little more, a little more. Go in with your fingers, a little more, a little more, a little more. Now you've got the pelvis, the cavity You know, through the pelvis is probably five or six inches long. So you're not going to get entirely all the way through. But you'll be able to reach in with a couple fingers and you'll see that that whole tube is just flopping around in there. When, once you reach that point, You've pretty much disconnected all of that part of the digestive system on the back end. So once that's done, and now you roll the deer on its back. And you usually have to put one leg on your leg. Then you're going to go back, and you're going to put your index finger all the way up, just very, very close to the point of your razor-sharp knife. And by the way, I I have a little folding buck knife. That's all I use it for is hunting. I don't use it for anything else, and I keep it sharp, sharp, sharp. That's all I use it for. And uh, my buddy's sons have grown up. I've given them all. It's a great Christmas gift. There's a little note that says, use this only for your hunting. Don't use it for anything else. Just keep it in your bag and keep it razor-sharp. So deer is on its back. First thing we're going to do is we're going to find out where we're going to make our first incision. Now most The mistake most hunters make is they make the incision way too close to the pelvis. So they can start cutting the skin very very close to the 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 pelvic bone and when they start to cut that skin just all pulls back then it exposes the meat there and that's really nice cuts of meat so those hams get all brown and dried out and you wind up having to cut that off when you're processing so start your incision well eight inches or ten inches up from the pelvis so you're You know, if you find the the deer's belly button, it's kind of hard to do. You could go back from that, you know, two or three inches towards, you know, aft on that. And then take the point of your knife, pull on the hair, and just nip, nip, nip. Now, your first pass, you're just going to try to go through the skin. And you'll see, just nip, 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 and make a little incision about an inch long, just like that. Very short strokes, just with the very, very tiniest point of the knife. Stick your finger in, and you'll feel the abdominal wall. Continue, nip, 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 pulling the skin up and putting your finger in. You do not want to penetrate the abdominal wall yet because the stomach is pushing right up against it right there and you don't want to puncture that or the odors get a little overwhelming and plus all those juices flow out and you don't want that to happen. So nip all the way to the... Sc- through the skin, up to the sternum, okay? Then go back to where you, you, the first part of your incision was, and now you're going to make the critical cut through the abdominal wall, and it's the same thing with the very point of your knife. Start making very slow incision movements, only about an inch, and you'll see the muscle tissues. You, you'll see you're going through it. You'll see are going through it. Push with your finger. Little more push the finger and your finger pushes through you didn't go through it with your knife you went through it with your finger now you can take two, two fingers from your other hand and put them in that opening and roll it over like this right so you have two fingers side by side and then you can take the point of the knife and lay it like this so you're holding the tissues down with the two fingers from one hand and you're using the blade of the knife in the other hand and then you can just make one smooth incision all the way up through the abdominal muscles. And you don't, the, the point and the blade of the knife never have an opportunity to touch those tissues. you see how that would work? So now you have an incision through the abdominal cavity. You can always make it a little bigger if you need to. Typically, the incisions that are made field dressing are way bigger than they need to be. My uh, son-in-law is a surgeon, so he will, <laughs> he's an OBGYN uh, gynecologist. So he, we've discussed making incisions. He's like, yeah, you can make incisions too big sometimes. So Now your next cut is... You're going to reach in with your hand. Now, point of order with this is normally when I've killed a deer, I'll look it over before I make any cuts. I'll flip it side to side because I want to see the entrance wound. I want to see the exit wound. And I want to see if it had any other wounds on it. So any old wounds. So whenever you're reaching into it, you know, it could be, although the chances are very small, there could be a broadhead in there or something. Unlikely, but it's always good to look the critter over entirely before you start your field dressing. So now you're going to go in with one hand. Without the knife, and you're going to feel the diaphragm. The diaphragm is that muscle that separates the heart lungs from the, from the digestive system. And you'll feel it. It's just a membrane that will be up against the rib. Then okay. you're going to go in this, holding the knife the same way with the, 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 the point of the blade on your index finger. Reach in with your left hand. Hold the tissues down with your left hand. Slide the knife in along your left hand so you're, you're not going to touch any tissues. And then cut the diaphragm usually there's a release of air if you haven't uh, shot it through the lungs. Now you reach up in as far as you can and you'll find the esophagus. My son shot his first deer last year and uh, he called me. He doesn't live very far away. He's like, dad, I got one down. I don't know what to do. So I went over and I was taking him through this whole procedure and I'm like, i reach up in there and feel that esophagus. He's like, I don't feel it. Like, You're not in far enough. So I reached right in and I've Got the the deer by the throat on the inside, and I'm shaking its head. See, it's way up here. <laughs> Reach way in. So then he's like, ah. "Can you feel it?" Yeah, that's it. Okay, now go in. You know, you've got it with your right hand, but your right hand is you're, so you're going to make your cuts with your right hand. Now go in with your left hand and grab it, and then come in with your right hand with a knife and cut it and cut it off. Now you've made the most difficult cuts. That's probably the most difficult one is getting it way up in it. And now you can start to roll tissues out of the body cavity. You can start rolling the viscera out. And you, what you're doing is you, any connecting tissues, if you can tear them, tear them. If you can't, very carefully cut them and roll, roll all the tissue out. Reach in and pull the plumbing into the body cavity and out. And you'll roll the whole all the internal organs out into a pile. And you will have to make some other little cuts to get it to come out, but it it will all roll out. Now, in that pile is going to be your heart and your liver, and you'll want to take that home. So, uh you'll want to inspect the liver and look it all over and the heart, same thing, the heart will be in a sack like, and you'll just remove that and put the heart in, in your plastic bag and that get that gets carried separately when you drag the deer out. So now you've made the smallest amount of decisions and that will protect the meat from any debris when you drag the deer out. And so that's how you field dress. And then you'll want to get it home and you'll want to cool it as quickly as possible um, when you hang your deer up and you, and you don't have to hang it for many days. In fact, the, when when you're processing your white-tailed deer the thing that tastes bad on a whitetail deer is the fat in the bone so you want to get all that out and when you cook it you want to put in good fat good tasting fat so you want to be just absolutely maniacal when you're trimming and when you hire someone to do it normally they won't be not as much as you will be you know you will you will trim it really really tightly it's a lot it's a lot of effort but i mean When you when you actually go to prepare it for the table, you'll find it's vastly superior to if you've trimmed out all that fat and you've done all complete fat and bone out process. So your quick clean kill, your your accurate field dressing without exposing a lot of the tissues to the to being dragged for dragging your deer in, and then hanging it by the hind legs so that. The blood runs towards the head. The lesser cuts of meats are up in the neck and the shoulder. And your best your best cuts of meat are in the hind are in your hams and your loins and your tenderloin. Those are the nicest cuts of meat. So you wanna hang it from behind legs. And you can get yourself a gambrel. You can hang them right in the connecting tissue on there. And so I'll hang them in the garage and I'll just put the head in the bucket because it will bleed and i will from for the deer that i shoot uh, i 'll hang it overnight and then immediately about processing it the next day i 'll immediately start processing it but we won 't get into all the other but I will share with you uh quick recipe and this will get you so uh, with all your game you know game tends to be rather lean and so um, it's very easy to overcook it and when you overcook it then it gets chewy because it really has no fats not marbled meat so with your game you want to cook it just to doneness and with uh, venison chops or venison steaks you can you can cook it rare and it's superb so um, a recipe that my wife and I really like is uh, you take your saute pan heat it Olive oil, a few slices of garlic, so you season the oil a little bit, and uh, I'll take some of the chops that I've cut. I like to cut them about an inch thick. Uh, the loin on a white deer is only about that big, you know, so they're they're small little chops, and uh, those will be um, peppered and lightly salted. You get the pan very very hot, so, and then you. Pan sear. You're only going to cook these things two minutes, maybe three. Very hot pan. Sear one side, sizzling hot sear. And so you turn it over, it's all caramelized and nice and brown, you know. Sear the other side, really, really hot. And then Take your chops out, reserve them, and then a little red wine, deglaze the pan, plate, and pour that over. Serve with your favorite sides. Oh, crazy good. i found that uh, trying to cook game on the gas grill just doesn't work. I still haven't figured out how to do it. There's no fat in it. So i found that for the venison cooking, uh, on the stovetop really works best for wheat wheat. I typically am not big on organ meat, but my I have some friends, and you know, certainly if your landowners like it or whatever, make sure they get they get it. I'm not a big fan of it. You know when you when you uh, field dress, the tenderloins are on the inside of the body cavity along the spine and they go right back to the pelvis and there'll be a lot of uh, normally there's big globs of fat on those and so you don't want to disturb that leave all that on there because those tenderloins are some of your really nice cuts of meat in there and that fat that fat that's on them will protect them from the air so don't wash the body cavity out with water just gray stain the the whole thing and it won't look right it'll still eat good it just so if you if you happen to shoot a a deer badly and where you've damaged the digestive system and you you know your field dressing is gonna be very messy. It's not going to smell good and what you want to do is just wipe the body cavity out when you get home with uh, some old rags. That's best. Paper towels, well, some old old clean old rags. Just wipe it out. Don't attempt to wash it out. I've done it. Bad idea. Bad. <laughs> don't do that. Still tastes good but like I said you'll stain it. And furthermore I'm cutting my own deer up too. I, I typically don't eat the ribs because they really have been exposed to the most uh, air and bacteria and such until I go to process. So. But that's just my style. Is it true that even when it's cold out, that bacteria could grow? Um, it's less likely the colder it is, right? But, yeah, it's still true. Because they'll, they'll stay warm for quite a while. You know, once you've got them hanging up by their legs, you can put a piece of wood or something into your field dress incision to, to let the heat out from the inside of that body cavity. You can do that or not. I typically don't because it will, will cool down overnight, but but it doesn't hurt to open it up a little bit. How do I drag them out? I, I was calling my son for a while when he was living at home. <laughs> uh, that's a real good question. How do you drag them out? There's lots of aids for dragging them out. Um, I just have this little three-quarter inch strap in my kill bag, and you can just tie the strap around their front legs and the head and make a big loop to drag it. A lot of times I don't bother. I will I will always have a, th- a thin pair of uh, leather gloves in my pack, so I'm not dragging out my hunting gloves. My hunting gloves are... I'll have gloves just for dragging deer, and I'll typically just drag them, grab them by the front legs and drag them out. But you set up all your gear, right? So you, you'll have all your heavy clothes stuff tied to your pack, You've unloaded your firearm and done all that, and then move your gear, drag the deer, move your gear, drag the deer, move your gear, yeah. I'm dragging them head first, yeah, yeah, I'm dragging them head first, and that's typical. They make these really cool straps that, that are really wide and have another handholds, so if you're hunting a party and you have two or three men with you, everybody can get a good grab on the strap, and it, that makes it really easy. You get three uh, three people on, the, on that big wide strap that uh, you can buy for dragging them out. Once again, that's kind of a personal thing, too, so how you get them out. I'll usually drag them close enough so... I can go get them with an ATV, but I'm not, normally I'm not hunting very deep, so I don't really have to drag them very far to get them to the road. I'm usually within or 300 yards from, from travel ways. I say that in a very general way, but I'm not, I don't hunt deep. And it doesn't mean the deer aren't in there deep. No, I normally don't. What's my preferred caliber for my rifle? Well, they all work. <laughs> You know, there's certain calibers you can't use. I don't think you can't use any 22 rimfire. I believe check me in all the regulation books. I'm not a CO, and uh, so, but I don't believe you can use any rimfire for. I have a thirty caliber rifle that I bought when I was 17 years old. I have a Browning Lever Action, and uh, that's the 308 cartridge, right? That's the NATO cartridge, so very, very effective. Shot a lot of deer with it, but I've, I've killed just as many with my shotgun, with my 12-gauge my shotgun. Shotgun's devastating, especially with the rifle barrels. In some areas, you can only shoot shotguns. So you really, if you're going to hunt in New Hampshire and southern New Hampshire, you, you, know, you really need a rifle and a shotgun, because a lot of your hunting is going to be shotgun. And if you want to improve your accuracy with your shotgun, you buy a rifle rifled slug barrel with it you know buy buy a rifle barrel and shoot sabos right if you're shooting a smoothbore barrel then you need rifled slugs to get some good accuracy but practice with all of it so um, it's not really a favorite it's just in fact I didn't even buy the gun Um, when I was I don't know 16 years old I, I said to my dad who didn't hunt you know I wanted a I wanted to hunt deer, you know, and I wanted to get a rifle. And he came home with a Browning lever, action because he had a good friend who was an expert in firearms and said, told my dad what to buy, and he said, you owe me $200. That's what I paid for that uh, Belgian-made Browning in 1973. So, uh, yeah, yeah, when I was living in Osby, New Hampshire. So that's a personal choice, too. They're, you know, it's one thing about firearms. They, they all work, and they all, they all do the same thing. So it doesn't matter what you call it or what it looks like. They, they all work. When I go out, do I use different kinds of calls? I will have them with me. I will have game calls with me every single time, and I will have, I will have a grunt tube very close where I can reach it, but I rarely use them. Why do I have it close? In case I want to try to stop a deer, but I'll, I've learned I could just use my voice because I got a low voice. So, <laughs> so, but. But I have them with me. Now, that's kind of a style thing, too. I mean, there's, there's times when deer will be very, very vulnerable to, to rattling. This is a rattle bag. And there's times when does will be very sensitive to doe bleats. And they'll come in for a look, and and there's times uh, during the, the breeding period where, where bucks will uh, will respond to grunting, you know, and combinations of rattling and grunting. But my style is to not let them have any sense of me at all. I try to go as low profile foot on the deer as possible. I don't want them to see me, smell me. I don't want them to hear anything that's not familiar. I don't. So normally, I don't do any calling. Have I? yes but I prefer not to you know especially if I know they're in there you know if I've found evidence that they're deer are in this area that's good fresh sign I'll wait them out I'll wait them out get the wind in my favor and wait them out but i i'll have I'll have the stuff with me. But with any with any of your calls, uh, it can work two ways, right? It Can work for you. It can work <laughs> against you. So you really have to uh, spend a lot of time practicing with it and know when the timing is right to use them. On buckler, the same thing with the uh, with the lures is the uh, you know the dough and heat, the pee. Yeah, that there's times when that. It will be extremely effective. But once again, I, it's something else to carry with. It's something else to set up. It's something else to deal with. And normally, I'll have it. I'll have it. But I rarely, rarely deploy it. You know, I, I, I bank on fresh sign. I bank on my scouting and I bank on sign. And so I'm not really trying to call them in. I'm waiting for them to come. They work. They work. That, that's Dave's style. I don't want it to backfire on me, you know. So how many how many deer have I taken? Oh, I I have a big ball of tags. I save all the tags. I don't know a lot. I'm reluctant to give numbers. I don't even know. I'd have to count them up. But yeah, I don't want it to be a competition either, you know. So I've been doing it a long time. I have a lot. I have a lot of tags. It's one thing I've done. I, I don't know if, if any other people in the room save the tags, but I have them all hanging up in my utility room on a on a cord, and there's a big pile of them up in there. Every time I get another one, I just hook it on and leave them up in there. I suggest you do that. I, I've seen some really neat displays. In fact, I, I have most of my old hunting license too. I have my hunting license from 1973. It was the first hunting license I bought, and I think I paid like sixteen dollars. So, but I've seen them put into like uh displays and such you know the the tags and the and the hunting licenses and so maybe someday i'll do a little art or- Artwork with from my man cave. How many years experience till I started having success? I had success early on, you know. Started hunting really, really intensely in '85, and uh, but I didn't really understand what I was doing. I, I I didn't really get a full picture of what the hunt was all about till I studied Dr. Nordberg's materials, and then you know the combination of having studied some remarkable literature and written in a really really awesome way, great delivery of the material too. They explained so many things to me that I had seen and didn't understand. And so I really got a full side picture of the whole hunt, if you will. The whole the whole hunt. And so I learned from that how to increase my success just by taking a few key things, which I shared with you. Fresh fresh droppings. Fresh droppings. You know that you find fresh piles. Those deer those deer are close and there's a chance that they're not very far away. So so I, I use that as a as my shortcut if I don't have time to scout. But plus I've been hunting the same pieces of ground years year over year, and then you, you learn some of their patterns. You know, you think about how the hunt progresses in in, in every state. You know, it typically starts with archery and then moves into muzzleloader or firearms, and or the firearms may swap either way, maybe regular firearms and muzzleloader at the end, but, but once you go from the the archery season, which is typically all stand hunting, there are some that will still hunt, but most archers will stand hunt. You know, it's a very low-profile, very low-pressure hunt. It's really based on the whitetail deer being in their patterns, their, 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 their normal daily feeding, sleeping, watering patterns. And so um, you can use that information as an advantage during the archery season. And then, But once you get into regular firearms, now you have a lot of people that are just uh, you know higher profile that are just out taking their gun for a walk. And then that really displaces a whole bunch of deer and it just and now you know, they they abandon their range and the hunt becomes into a complete crapshoot. So your success, your planned success are best early on in your bow and your muzzle loader. Because once muzzle loader's gone on for a number of days and once you hit regular firearms, the profile of the hunt goes way up. There's so many people, there's so many people walking around that the deer are all just spooked and they're all driven into strange little pieces of their range where they feel safe. And unless they get pushed out of there, you know, your chances of encounter just become really accidental at that point. And it also happens to coincide with the primary breeding activity, which kind of makes it all just just a a crapshoot. It's just putting time, put your time in. So I, I learned from experience in my local area where the deer normally were when the pressure was off and where they would be, and that increased my success. But then I also learned where they would be once, once the, the profile of the hunt went way up and into regular firearms. I've, I, I can tell you exactly where they're going to be five days into the firearm hunt near my house. You can't pull the trigger down there cause, because of the roadways and the houses. But you can go down there and spook them all out. You know, I'm down there and see six, eight, ten deer, and you know, I don't even bother with them. You know, it's just, it's just not, you know, not safe to hunt them, or, and I don't even want to chase them out of there. They'll be there for me next year. (laughs) been a great audience. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thanks
0: to Dave Priby for bringing us the Deer Hunting Basics. It was a show that was long overdue, and hopefully if you're a newbie hunter, you're listening to this show, and hopefully you got a lot of tips from Dave. And certainly, now that you've taken that course with us, you can go back and listen to our entire back catalog. And get, get the, all the advanced courses that you want, including Dave's that he did at this time last year for us, called Hunting Dominant Bucks. Abso- absolutely great, great show. And it was based off of the studies of Dr. Ken Nordberg, who we've also had on the show. We have, we, Dave got me all excited about Dr. Ken Nordberg, and I went out and bought a few of his early almanacs. And I said, well, why, no, why not just get the man himself, Dr. Ken Nord- Nordberg, on the show And that's what we did. So we've had Ken on the show before. So that was a great show. And I think that was a a much needed show, Dusty. And I'd like to uh, see if you have something to add to that. Perhaps you have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. I do have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. The Chubby Tines Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms. Bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, Goods Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods.
1: Chubby times to the week's going to talk a little bit about the uh, pre rut that's getting ready to come in the, to play in the whitetail woods here in the next few weeks. You know, we get into I always say like around the October twenty fifth through the the Halloween that you're going to see a little pre rut activity and. And what we see here in Ohio is that these bucks are going to start gorging on food, and uh, you know a, a food source is going to be a huge focal point for myself and a lot of other hunters that uh, have been out there and witnessed uh, the pre-rut activities. They're going to start really trying to pack on as many pounds as they can before this rut kicks off, because uh, we all know once the rut hits, it's nonstop on the run for you know a solid month and. They try to really pack on as much nutrition as they can because they're going to deplete all their resources as far as nutritional uh, as they start in the rut and chasing does. And it takes a really, really hard toll on their body uh, once the rut kicks in. But uh, also you got to remember with the rut kicking off that uh, these bucks are going to run the does. It seems like daybreak, it starts out in the woods and then they lead out to some kind of either a CRP or a a cut cornfield, somewhere that they can keep a good visual on the doe. They can keep a good visual out uh, for predators or hunters, so they go to them a lot of times. They go to them open fields, and uh, that's going to be a, a huge focal point for myself to to get to the fields and uh, hunt the skirtings of uh, cut cornfields or a thicket where the the deer are going to naturally push out so that they can keep an eye on their does and they can keep the the predators and the uh, the hunters in, in a visual sighting of anything that could bother them. They're they're going to want to get out in fields, and it gives them more room to run chase the doe wear her down get her where she's kind of wore out where they can uh you know put the fancy on her so i started focusing on uh tree stand placements along my field edges and if you got uh, if you got everything set up just right i tell you the rut can be really fun but uh it's so unpredictable once the rut kicks in and what the deer movement's going to be and you're going to see a lot of chasing a lot of a lot of buck activity cruising around trying to find a scent trail maybe on a hot doe but uh with any luck you would be out there in the woods and uh old Mr. Big Boy run right under you.
0: Awesome tip, man. I did notice that when you were here and as I was out doing some last-minute scouting for a bear place for us to hunt or for you to hunt, I actually came across my first scrapes that I had seen all season. And in fact, um, in pretty much every place we went, we finally saw some... Some activity where the pre rut is is kicking in. In fact I, I found a pretty good scrape behind my house today, so I was pretty excited that that's that's common. So yeah, that's that's a very good tip and very appropriate for this time of year. Thank you to Scentlock Enforcer for sponsoring the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. Also want to say thank you to Morse's Sporting Goods for sponsoring the Chubby Tines tip of the week. And thank you to the Eurohanger for sponsoring the show as well. Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here on the mic with me?
1: Shoot me an email, dusty at com. I try to get back to every email I receive from everybody, and uh, I'll try my best to answer it. If I can't answer it, I usually have the resources or connection to be able to answer your questions. It's uh, Sometimes they're difficult, and it takes me a day or two, but I try my dangest to get back with you with a direct answer, or something that's true and something that uh, you can work off of. You can also look me up on Facebook facebook.com forward slash chubby tines outdoors or shoot me a uh, follow on instagram at chasing antler jay where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic
0: a couple of places where you can reach me you can email me that's probably the best place to start It's jay at bigbuckregistry.com you can always give us a call at 724-613-2825 and leave a message if you'd like to just check us out in general uh, we are all over social media and you can check out our flagship Facebook page where we have almost 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans listening to the show and checking out all the big bucks that are being sent in from all of our patrons across the country. Uh, you can go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash Facebook. Uh, likewise, we have Twitter accounts, uh, Instagram accounts, Twitter.com forward slash Big Buck Registry. Instagram is Instagram.com forward slash Big Buck Registry. We're on YouTube where you can get actually the, a video of the audio of the show every week now, and that's uh, bigbuckregistry.com forward slash YouTube. You can find us on Google+. Plus. If you would like to send in a buck to be featured on our Facebook page, all you have to go is bigbuckregistry.com forward slash mybuck. And once again, if you'd like to become a patron and join the crowd over there that's donating to the Big Buck Registry cause because they love listening to this show. You can go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash donate. And finally, if you'd like to listen to the show on other places other than iTunes, if you are on iTunes, please leave us a review and hit the subscribe button. Helps us in the rankings. Not that we care a lot about rankings, but if you'd like to subscribe, please do so. You can find us on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Google Play. So those are the big four or five. We go everywhere podcasts go. So you'll be able to find us anywhere like that. It's been a fantastic show. Thanks for joining me again for an hour and hanging out and talking deer hunting, listening to our guests, and we'll have to do it again next
1: week. Absolutely, Jay. I'm Dusty Phillips. I'm Jay Scott. And this is another great episode of the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. Can't wait.